Welcome guys to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm your host Steve Hall and I have another excellent guest for you this week with Bryce Lewis. So I first heard of Bryce or kind of found Bryce through probably 3D Muscle Journey, Eric Helms and Matt Ogus. Um, Bryce was kind of featured on his channel I know a few times. Um, I don't particularly follow YouTube and Matt Ogus a lot now but in, in the past there was kind of mobility work um, and things like that, which I, I found incredibly helpful. And I know Bryce is kind of massively a giver and he has his own kind of way of giving information now. Lots of people know about him and you hopefully have heard of the Strength Athlete. So that's Bryce's main kind of coaching platform at the moment. Um, and that's all powerlifting. So um, I know you've coached, I think this is old information, but over 500 different athletes, uh, which is fantastic. And I know like you would have helped thousands by now because i've personally downloaded your kind of the intermediate training program on the website just to to look over the programming and learn for myself which is fantastic and i i definitely recommend other people do the same um and apart from that i know you used to do volleyball to a high high level you also competed in bodybuilding at one point which um is kind of interesting to the listeners who are into bodybuilding and powerlifting just like myself um but now fully into powerlifting and a highly successful powerlifter so i'll have to read these off so the listeners know um because I'll, I'll i'll get them wrong otherwise so um you've got several uspl and ipf records to your name and you're the current national champion for the 105 kilogram class in the uspl um, and you're going to be competing in the ipf worlds in belarus shortly uh, which we'll get into and i know also i like to add a little bit of context to these things because obviously you're a coach, you're an athlete, like powerlifting is kind of your day-to-day, but you have I believe, actually a wife, um, you're married. Is that right? I don't want to get that right. Yeah, you are married. Yeah, I am. I was just We've thinking, been married a, li- a little over three years now. Yeah, so I, I don't want to say, put you in the kind of, in the shitter, <laughs> say you're no. married, and then you, and it should be, <laughs> if she listens in, it's like, now I expect a proposal. So I knew yeah, you no, were We're long-term. definitely married. <laughs> And yeah. you've got dogs, but not not a full full on family yet. So you you're not just. And I know you like kind of your food, very much into cooking and stuff. See that come on Instagram and stuff. So people know there's more to Bryce than just powerlifting. Um, so is <laughs> anything you want to add to that, Bryce? Um, well, thank you for the the warm introduction. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah, powerlifting is has become a lot of my life lately, both in terms of competing and training as an athlete. Uh, coaching other athletes and then running the strength athlete uh, where I get to work with four other fantastic coaches helping athletes uh, around the world so that that takes care of most of the things outside of that um, you mentioned a few hobbies and some drawing uh, in there as well and getting outdoors every now and then photography and so on but um, yeah awesome. lifting lifting lots of lifting and that is what we're going to be talking about. So we t- I just touched on your preparation for Belarus um, and just want to kind of hear how, how is that going? How's your preparation going? Have you achieved any good kind of lifts recently? Um, how are you feeling for it? Yeah, so I, I was lucky enough to just edge out uh, the other competitors and get a spot on the team headed to Belarus. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for that and and just getting to compete there this year is is the prize, you know, and just being able to get to that next level and and see how competing at the world level is even like. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, training has been for the most part good. Um, bench press feels great. Uh, about two weeks ago, I did something to my left glute and it's been feeling kind of funky. So, um, training loads have taken uh, a little bit of a hit on squatting and deadlifting. They just don't feel as comfortable, mm-hmm. um, in the setup and execution of the lift. So, um, I'm working with a PT and just doing some work on my own to see if I can improve that over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's the worst thing for you is to potentially be injured going into the competition. So you'll do everything you can now while you've got the time to make maneuvers around that. And I guess, I mean, I know you know a lot about kind of physiotherapy, well, not physiotherapy necessarily, but those sort of mobility drills and that. Um, do you think that's been kind of pivotal to your progression over the, the last few years? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I've actually been... Uh, increasingly skeptical of physical therapy practices as as time goes on. Um, So does that serve me better? Possibly in the fact that I'm avoiding things that um, don't really have much of an effect. But um, honestly, you know, I think there's a lot of effect in placebo and and I wish wish that I still believed in some things more (laughs) because maybe they actually would have caused some positive effect in terms of increased recovery or something like that. No, definitely. Uh, I think that's that's a great point. I know um, I, I personally follow Quinn Hennock a fair amount and he's bringing yeah. out information that's fantastic. Whereas I know my kind of the, the golden boy was, uh, I've forgotten, supple leopard. Um, and I used to use a lot of those methods. Yeah. Um, so the, it's the problem for me right now is like I need I need help. I need some physical therapy, but like. I only know things that are not effective. I don't know things that are effective, you know, like self myofascial release may, you know, be slightly beneficial at increasing range of motion, but you know, the, the amount of force required to cause structural changes in tissue is more than what we can apply. uh, And you would just, you know, break the muscle apart. Similar, you know, claims can be made against dry needling and hot and cold treatment and um chiropractic and all of these other things so i'm left i'm left not knowing what it actually works yeah it's hard it's almost sometimes the more you know the more you wish you didn't know and you kind of <laughs> ignorance is bliss sometimes for sure yeah yeah exactly um and actually i mean because we've kind of ruled out obviously i mean mobility i think a lot of people would have realized that wasn't going to be the thing that's made a tremendous difference to your results but over the last two years you were a good lifter and actually i was talking to um this just today i have you know lawrence farnclum i believe you've spoken to him before um he's mm-hmm. the head great british coach and he is actually uh, he trains out of my gym so I, oh, cool. I i'm in quite close contact with him and he's been on the podcast before and he's kind of a great guy and he was i told him about you were coming on today um and he he was touching on kind of what am i going to ask about and i was going to ask well, how over the last two years have you gone? And he was like, how you shot up out of kind of out of nowhere, almost seemingly over the last yeah. few years, you were, you were a very good lifter. And then you were kind of like, he right in his eyes as a very standout competitive lifter. And what, if we just touch on a few things, what do you think, what's changed over the last few years or what's made the difference, do you believe, to get you to where you are right now, which is like in a fantastic position? Right, so my last meet as a 93 kilo lifter was nationals in October of 2014, and uh, it wasn't uh, you know a short diet to get 
down to the 93 kilo lifting class. I didn't have to do a whole lot of water manipulation, but I did have to do a lot of calorie restriction to get there. Mm -hmm. And as a result, performance dropped, you know, and, and it's been kind of consistently that way that in the 93 kilo class, um, performance just hasn't been up to, uh, where training lifts had been. And obviously because I'd been training heavier and then dieting down to competition and, you know, expecting a high level of performance and it just wasn't there. So we decided at that point to, uh, to just compete at whatever body weight that I landed at, which ended up being around the middle between the 93 and 105 kilo weight classes and just slowly worked my way up. So I won't say that it's all increased body weight, but it made a massive difference just not dieting for competition first off so that you get um, higher levels of in-competition performance. And also the the calorie surplus, the lack of stress in life generally. Um, we also made a move from four days of training to five days of training per week, which spread fatigue possibly a little bit better, mm-hmm. allowing for more recovery, um, better attention to the movements that I was doing. Um, so those were the big things. Um, Technique changed a little bit, so I switched from conventional deadlifting to sumo deadlifting, Mm -hmm. and I think that the increased efficiency at sumo, the fact that it didn't take as much of a toll on, you know, overall physiological recovery probably went uh, a ways on the deadlift. But yeah, the combination of those things probably increased performance quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And you talked about, uh, you touched on we. Uh, have you changed, I'm assuming that means your your coach, I believe, by Eric Helms at the moment. Have Did you change coaches, say always Eric or? Yes, so Eric has been my powerlifting coach from the very start. Um, I've been lucky enough to, um, to be able to build a good relationship with him. He knows me, you know, better over time. We've been able to kind of find patterns and find what works. Mm-hmm. And just more so, he's been able to talk me off the ledge when things freak out or I have a bad training session or something like that. And that's been invaluable, you know, like programming aside, the emotional support, uh, when I need it is probably the biggest thing that I benefit from coaching. So yeah, it's been Eric Helms for, um, just about seven years now since I started powerlifting and then one year of bodybuilding before that. Wow. So yeah, you must have a very good relationship with him and uh, the listeners will know who Eric Helms is because he's been on the podcast. I mean, he is he uh, he is almost like the the token everyone thinks of Eric Helms when they think of bodybuilding and powerlifting. So he has he he's obviously a brilliant guy, and um, it's interesting to hear technique change a little bit. And I guess for a lot of people, sumo is if you can do it effectively, it is a more efficient lift, um, and like you can almost do more of it. Like you were saying, it's not as kind of psychologically physiologically and psychologically in many ways as as tiring so you can get more volume with it i i presume and then also i guess the five days split has allowed you to get out more volume potentially so through your programming and kind of more effective volume potentially um in many ways it doesn't sound like anything drastic really changed apart from maybe the biggest thing that it sounds like was the body weight kind of just allow and the stress that I guess the dieting brought and having to get into that body weight category. And I know you've spoken about it before um, in that you see a lot of lifters kind of hold on to certain weight categories and they really diet down for it rather than let their body weight settle where they feel kind of best. And I guess this is similar and people can relate it to bodybuilding in that 
people talk about kind of staying lean to try and kind of potentiate more muscle mass growth but if you don't feel good then that's never going to be good for your lifts for your training which is always the most important thing when it comes to powerlifting and bodybuilding yeah that's right you know i think for for high level lifters you can talk about getting down to a specific weight class because you're the most competitive there but the the message that I try to, to put out there is that the majority of lifters, the weight classes are just arbitrary numbers. You know, you're not looking for um, national records or something like that and just continuing to improve your own performance. So kind of measuring you versus you over time is going to be the best way and, and to really just disregard the weight classes for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've seen the best progress in athletes when that's the case, you know, and it, it really just you know, 63 kilos or 74, 83 or 93, like those are somewhat arbitrary numbers, you know, um, considering here in the U S there's 198 pounds, 181, you know, kind of the older uh, American weight classes. And so it's best to focus on what, uh, what body weight can I get my best performance at Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of trying to force yourself into a weight class that you may not belong in. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I definitely see that. And I think especially younger lifters would really, really benefit from listening to that. And I think something else I guess would be interesting to me is if someone was competitive at maybe a lower body weight, I guess uh, the way I view things, probably dieting beforehand, getting that weight off beforehand so then you can come into the meats in a non-dieted state is probably a good way to go. Um, I guess you've really benefited from that nutritional app kind of having plenty of carbs plenty of just energy just overflowing with that um do you think that played quite a big role for yourself i do Uh, i go back and forth by the way steve on the the issue of how how best to make a weight class okay if you're that if you're that high level athlete um preparing for a competition and you're over your competitive weight class trying to get down to the top um i go back and forth weight cuts can be very effective and i'm talking water yeah water and substrate manipulation up to, you know, let's say 3% body weight, which for a lot of people is exactly what they're trying to cut. You know, let's pretend someone's a 93 kilo lifter. If they're 95, 96, that's an easy thing to do with water manipulation. And the benefit there is that you get to stay in a caloric maintenance period, you know, basically all the way up into the competition without needing a deficit. Uh, On the other hand, part of me says, let's, let's not roll the dice right before a competition with a water cut, you know, let's get a calorie deficit in much earlier on. Let's get you exactly two or even uh, a half a kilo below your competitive weight class, give you some room so that stress is as low as possible by the time you actually approach. And maybe we have enough room to increase calories up into the competition. You know, speaking from a bodybuilding standpoint, that would be ideal anyways, because you, you know, increase glycogen and muscle tissue and you look better but from a performance standpoint i think we're looking at something similar too um increasing calories into the competition is ideal um being able to have a a large meal the night before being able to put the stress out of your mind of needing to be a specific body weight because hey you already are so i go back and forth on which of those is ideal Mm -hmm. you know the weight cut method um for manipulating water um if you're within three percent i don't think it's going to have a negative effect on performance outside of any any leverage uh issues 
you know, if you're a little bit lighter, your belt is going to fit a little bit different. You might have a slightly different forward lean in your squat uh, mm-hmm. and your deadlift. And on bench press, your diameter is a little bit smaller uh, all the way around. So you're going to be pressing the bar with a slightly longer range of motion. Yeah. Um, that's going to happen, though, regardless of how you diet down to your weight class. So really now we're just talking about do we want to do it by calorie deficit or do we want to do it by water? And ultimately, I think it's on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. For some people, it's super easy to to use water manipulation. It doesn't seem to have an emotional toll or a physical toll. Um, they can do it no problem. And for other people, uh, it, it really is kind of a roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. No, it's super interesting. And I, I'm glad you kind of drew on the bodybuilding aspect because I was thinking about like peaking and um, how kind of there's different approaches that people take and... I definitely think the stress, like you said, and that will be individual to people, I guess. People who have never tried it before, it might be very stressful, um, but people who are kind of experienced with it and have done it like time and time again, it'll be kind of quite easy. Um, Do you ever kind of, as people, speaking of bodybuilding and people do like practice peak weeks, do you ever do like mock meets where you do try and do the, the water cuts and actually practice that sort of thing? Have you ever done that yourself? Yeah, for some athletes, uh, if, if there's a large competition on the horizon and it's our first time cutting um, cutting weight to make it, it's effective to practice that, both mm-hmm. in terms of, of having the athlete go through the process of what this is going to be like, and secondarily to figure out, okay, well, how much weight can we lose via this method so that we know, okay, well, if we can only lose a kilo using water manipulation, you're going to have to be 94 kilos before we start this or you're never going to make it. So it does serve to get some additional information and at pretty low cost too. All we're doing is fluid, fluid manipulation, really. Cool. No, I think that's a good point. And I think, yeah, just people need to know themselves and to try things out for themselves. And I think for a lot of people who are listening to this, who will be kind of not the super competitive and everything, they're probably better off, especially if they're thinking of doing their, like their first or second powerlifting meet is just to roll into their weight class, not think about water cutting and all these things and just kind of get numbers um, on on the table. Yeah, exactly. There's there's enough to be focused on at your first few competitions to not have to worry about that at all. I mean, you've got uh, commands, you've got uh, um, the first time probably performing in front of an audience. Um, so you have to deal with that and to deal with the exacting specifications of the federation you decide to compete in. Uh, and not to mention trying to put up your best performance ever. Mm-hmm. So why throw another wrench into the works if it's absolutely not necessary? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and just to touch briefly on, you talked about your training frequency changing from four times a week to five times a week. Did your frequency of the lifts change on that as well? I guess you spread them out over further days. Um and the individual lifts, I know you were recently talking to Mike Schurder on his podcast and you spoke about how your differences in kind of deadlift frequency uh, were there. And has, it, has that changed for you and with your athletes, how kind of does that look um, across the board? That's a great question. Um, for me, we took the same lift frequency and just spread it over an extra day. Cool. The, the idea was um, I just I wanted to to train more frequently, but less time per training session so I could get back to work. It was kind of a a logistical consideration Mm -hmm. and it it happened to also spread fatigue a little bit better. So for, for me, um, we didn't change lift frequency at all in other athletes. Um, deciding on lift frequency 
usually has to do with figuring out when they come to you, where do they start off? Um, and if they started off somewhere reasonable, then you can pick up there. If they started off somewhere unreasonable, both in terms of too little or too much, you can kind of correct to somewhere um, in a middle range and then just slowly increase frequency as you go up. Mm-hmm. For the athletes that I work with, I don't have anyone squatting more than four times per week, benching more than five times per week, and deadlifting more than twice um, with a with a deadlift variation sometimes is a, a two and a half. Um, and that's spread over at most six days. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, because I know there's been, I know like Mike himself quite likes the higher frequency and there's been quite a lot of kind of, well, not a lot, but there's been some small amount of research kind of coming out within the, the higher frequency powerlifting. But um, it's it's definitely in its kind of early stages. So it's interesting to hear how kind of you kept yours the same and seen better results just by spreading that. And I think a lot of the time when we do look at, kind of the frequency it has become a just a way of spreading volume and as you get more advanced i guess you find value in spreading it more and that's essentially what you did in a way yeah exactly and again there's so much individuality here so for instance a lot of athletes have benefit by consolidating lower training volume or lower body training volume into a few sessions so doing squat and deadlift on one day and squat and deadlift again on another day so that there is more time in between times where you've trained the lower body so that you have kind of quote unquote full rest. Um, whereas I like to do kind of a little bit squatting on one day, deadlifting on another, squatting on another and so on. So it's just different ways of splitting up the same training. Back to the frequency thing. Um, yeah, the, the research on higher frequency to me seems pretty convincing. Um, with the caveat that these are theoretical models and you run up against real world um, limits like, Hey, I can't go into the gym six days a week. Sorry. You know, so even if in theory, it seems like a good idea in practice, we need to make sure what, you know, what training approach is going to allow you to do this for three years, four years, you know, 10 years Mm -hmm. into your future without, um, without getting burnout. Mm -hmm. And I guess do, would it be anything you'd consider periodizing at times? Like, I know the the squat every day, like there's been quite good kind of use of that and people have seen good results with it, but it's not something you'd keep all the time. Have you ever manipulated things like that? Or do you do you find actually keeping things relatively simple and the same, actually you see better stuff happening? Yeah, one thing I haven't really played around with uh, a whole lot is shock shock mesocycles or mm-hmm. uh, periods where you, you heavily adjust frequency and then kind of dial it back. So... You know, the Smolov base cycle, um, Shaiko has a few kind of very high volume, very short um, duration periods of time. I haven't played around with a whole lot of that, but I can see how those would be used um, during the year. If I have an athlete who's making a lot of success, um, we'll definitely ride that wave and just continue adding intensity. Um, But I haven't played around with large bumps in frequency for the sake of additional short bursts of progress. Okay. No, that's fine. And I mean, you keep to what works for the most part and kind of you're keeping on the, on the science and you're keeping up to date with stuff. So I think that's, that's enough. You obviously update your views and update things anyway. So no, it's really interesting to hear. And I think the the next question I wanted to get onto, and we kind of, we might've changed, talked about it a little bit already with some of the kind of psychological and stress aspects, but, um, 
you're surrounded by kind of some of the top lifters. I mean, you are one of the top lifters and you're surrounded by those as well. Um, and you're surrounded by and you coach a lot of kind of very good, decent lifters. Do you see any kind of big differences between those people? Is there a reason that some people are top lifters, other people aren't? Is it kind of what does that come down to for the most part do you see? Um, that's a fantastic question. And it's one that science in general for a long time has been trying to answer. You know, what makes someone a high level lifter and someone not? And there's going to be just a mix of a ton of different factors. Uh, and, and we can go over a lot of those. So for instance, on the physiological side and, and psychological, but on the physiological side, uh, you've got individual differences in, uh, how athletes respond to the same training stimulus. So in terms of like bang for buck, uh, you know, three sets of eight or something like that can elicit a certain training stimulus in one athlete and can elicit three times that same mm -hmm. training stimulus in another athlete. There are changes in recoverability, so how much recovery time you need in between um, specific specific uh, training sessions. Um like I said, differences in how you respond. So the, the growth per, per unit of, of work. And then on the psychological side, differences in attributional style. So if you achieve success, how do you attribute that success? Is it, is it things that you did or did you just get lucky? How do you describe your success? And generally, um, those differences, can be somewhat predictive of the high levels of performance. Uh, and, and it can be different in terms of um, if you succeeded or failed. So let me pull up some notes that I had here from um, this very conversation. Awesome. So in terms of attributional style, um, there was a study by um, Buchanan and Seligman in 95. So how do optimists who, who generally do better in terms of uh, performance uh, as athletes, um, how do they explain positive events? So they explain positive events as internal, so it's something that was within your control to do, as stable, so that the reason for your success will always be there, um, and as global, that my reason for success here is the same as my reason for success in other things. Cool. Um, when it comes to negative events, they describe the failure as external, so it was something that they couldn't control. So they shift the burden of blame mm -hmm. um, as unstable. So the reason is only temporary. Um, you know, maybe I had a bad performance in this powerlifting competition because uh, I had to fly out, uh, you know, and compete in in a place that I don't normally do. But that's unstable. It might not be the case in a future competition. That's good because. It makes it so that I have room for improvement and that I am not myself a failure. Mm -hmm. And it's specific. It applies to only this one circumstance. So attributional style can um, keep an athlete positive or it can keep an athlete negative in terms of how they view their successes and failures. That's really cool. Um, do you ever kind of use that as a, as a coaching tool with your athletes? Kind of, Do you refer back to that and try and get them to kind of more towards that sort of way of thinking? If if you find athletes that are more pessimist in terms of their explanatory style, you can give them some strategies to think outside that um, so that they don't internalize a training failure to I am a failure. And that's a big thing, you know, yeah. like 
it, we're all going to come up against hard sessions where we're, we underperform, you know, below a specific goal. If you, if you view that as I failed, that's fine. But if you view that as I am a failure, that's a difference because it's going to prevent future successes. So if they're open with you in terms of communication, you can head off some of those things and give them tools to, um, to kind of frame things in a different way. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. The, the framing and I've, I've, yeah, I've heard about framing before, um, or I think that is something that's kind of a psychological thing with the framing and putting things in to a good perspective. Cause I certainly have lifters who do get discouraged sometimes about their performance. And I find myself actually without thinking about what you've just talked about here, definitely trying to kind of reason with them um, and try and show them progress where they have made it. And yeah, try and normally there is an explanation that is outside of their control. Um, and that that's really interesting and for yourself. Um, I guess having a coach through Eric who knows you, he, I guess has helped with this. He's kept, kept you kind of stable. Yeah, definitely. Um, the thing that helps most with having, well, there's a few things, but having an outside perspective is probably the biggest thing. So when, when you're training, you are in the day to day of things and it's very hard to see the larger picture, um, or to realize that yes, things might be tough right now, but that's by design yeah. and things will get easier going forward or, Hey, you're supposed to feel this way right now. So all those kind of like meta thoughts, it's really good to have an outside perspective for. Mm -hmm. And over time, I've actually um, used Eric less and less frequently. So our check-ins now are every four weeks or, or three weeks or something like that. They're not on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. No, that's really good. And I guess that shows how you can use a coach and kind of then just have them as a kind of, as and when you need them to keep you on the right path. Um, but it certainly shows the benefits of having not just kind of, and this is completely out of programming and kind of training and nutrition. This is psychological and this is something that you, you can't kind of get from just a cookie cutter training program or anything, even a des custom design program. You need a coach that can actually talk you through things and just having that experience has then allowed you, and I'm sure it's influenced your own coaching and helped you improve your own coaching. Yeah. You know, it's my dream that, one day we'll be able to get TSA to the point where we can cover kind of all of the basis of what sport coaching should should be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we do nutritional um, adjustments, training and programming, kind of forecasting, um, you know, off-season training, on-season training, strategy, um, technique, all that kind of stuff. But there are still some things that you know, I feel that we have to outsource and it would be really cool to keep all of that stuff in house in the same way that professional sports teams have a whole staff of people to work at the athletes disposal. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously we're not working directly with all professional athletes, but I still want to be able to provide them that. So it would be cool to have a sports psychologist, a physical therapist, um, you know, someone who is a registered dietitian, mm -hmm. um, and just kind of bring in more resources so that the athletes are able to kind of develop from all these angles. No, it's really that, that actually, I, I've never really thought about that because I, obviously I'm an online coach as well, but, and I find myself kind of saying, oh, for some aspects is out of my scope of practice and things. And it would be really nice because you want to help every client you've got in the best way possible. So, but sometimes there are site I've definitely had probably more so the psychological side where I feel like I am almost becoming a psychiatrist, but I'm, I'm not qualified for that. And I feel like 
that's where I need to refer them out or at least recommend them to be kind of seeing someone else. I think it probably helped me as well seeing kind of how my how they interact with that person. Yeah, exactly. And one benefit of keeping everything in house is you kind of all get to share information on this athlete and you all have this athlete's best interest in mind and and you get to develop them as they go forward. I do think some of the sports psychology stuff, I hope, um, takes a larger role because I've just seen how much it affects performance, you know? And that's actually really cool how that's, that's kind of led on to the next question because I know and I watched, I think it was um, the Powerlifting University, you did a, a, a talk on there on psychology. And I thought that was really interesting. I think there was an element of where you talked about kind of how, what happens today whether it might be like your body weight on the scale, your lift progress, whatever it might be, you're always looking back at what it could be. You never actually know what has led to that. Um, I don't know if you want to kind of talk to this at all or if you want to expand about kind of the importance and the role of psychology for kind of progress in athletes. Yeah, so there's a lot of things. Um, uh, On the one hand, the the hindsight bias is the, the idea that um, it's the idea that you know some event happens and after the fact we create a reason why that event happened even if we don't exactly know uh, and this happens in strength and conditioning all the time for you know n equals one cases and that's why you know when you said like hey you know what happened to make your progress so great from 2014 to now. I can only guess, you know, instead of insert reasons and, uh, you know, ultimately that's going to be better. So when people have great training cycles or when people have really shitty training cycles, we want to find a reason for that kind of stuff because we're moral creatures and we're thinking and we want to be able to understand the world around us, Mm -hmm. but we have to understand the limits of that type of thinking at least. Um, in terms of motivation, we can talk about uh, what motivates athletes. And I think self-determination theory has kind of a great framework for that. Mm -hmm. So it's like these three pillars of why we're motivated to do things. And and it applies to sport pretty darn well. So Mm -hmm. uh, relatedness, the degree to which we kind of relate to uh, others around us, other people doing the same activity. So other athletes, uh, other coaches, the idea, the the degree to which we feel part of a community. Uh, Autonomy is the second one. So the idea that uh, you have control over your destiny in this, that that you are the author of your own actions. And then finally, um, competence. The idea that if I put in work, then I can succeed in this, that there's a relationship between effort and outcome. And so for a lot of people, when they're injured or training isn't going well, that sense of competence uh, decreases and, and so does motivation as a result. No, I think that's that's actually fantastic when you're talking through those. I've heard of it, but when you talk through each aspect, and I, I do think of even myself and my clients, and that's definitely something, I, I think that's something a coach can really provide because, well, a coaching team and you've got other clients, I guess, then you're in kind of a group together and like we can think to your TSA, you've got a, a group there. Um, and so if like 3DMJ, it's a community where you're surrounded by like-minded individuals and that can really kind of just help push you forward. It can keep you on track. And then, yeah, I guess you probably do this with your athletes in that it's not like your way or the highway. You have discussions over their training, kind of programming. You give them some autonomy um, for like, at least like training frequency and stuff like that. Um, that's very important. 
Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of ways to, especially in our sport, insert autonomy. You know, RPE is is one way. Yeah. Hey, you've got control over the load. Um, you can say, hey, what type of movements do you want to do? What's fun to you? What does your schedule look like? Hey, here's the training approach I came up with. How does this look to you? Um, so to kind of put them in the driver's seat more often. Mm-hmm. I think for coaches that's important as well because it puts less pressure on you as the coach in, in a sense because you can't be you don't know everything you don't know the insides and outs of the athlete and i know actually i think i can think of jeff alberts who in some of his programs with some of his clients he says like it use a row variant that kind of you feel good with i'm not going to tell you exactly what row variant you have to do but pick one that you feel good with and i think in some ways people will think that's a cop-out but in many ways it's just the truth it's just we don't we're not that person we can't be in their body um and so having them having some control and having them realize why they're doing things is important as well because if if they don't know why they're doing it then their probably belief systems aren't going to be there yeah you know I, i can see the athlete who says look i hired you because i want you to choose the movement that i'm supposed to do uh and and we run across that too um but at that point, we have to kind of counter and say, there's no research on which row variant is going to be better than another, not to mention what equipment you have available to you and stuff like that. So we're taking care of the important things and some things we're just going to give you some control on. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and to go a touch further with the kind of psychological aspects, uh, when you are, I mean, I've watched and you used to actually do it more frequently, your live videos on Facebook kind of of your lifting and things like that um, and it's it's really interesting watching different people lift in their environment and all of those sort of things do you at all use kind of visualization or do you practice any kind of mental aspects before you lift like on off days or even during training how do you really kind of prepare yourself especially for like lifts maybe that you've not done before um, or maybe that kind of cause anxiety or anything like that the uh the lifting environment um, can play a big role for me. So um, certain music can have a really soothing, kind of uh, encouraging effect on me. Um, you know, just a sense that I'm in control, you know, like autonomy and um, just regulating arousal level is huge for me. So for for all athletes, there's going to be some range of arousal that you perform best in and then uh, too excitable slash nervous ends up decreasing performance um too calm also ends up decreasing performance so there's kind of a, a goldilocks range there that may be different for different athletes you know if you take a look at screamer um the the 105 kilo lifter yep. from the uk he may be higher on the uh, arousal curve than i may be but it's still ideal for him whereas you know mine is ideal for me mm-hmm. when i look back on the days where I have felt like I could have lifted the world, um, I am I'm somewhat calm, um, confident. There's no anxiety. There's a sense that I've been here before, um, and there's no fear. So removing the fear can be done by a bunch of different ways. But for me, um, almost smiling my way through it, uh, and and the music definitely helps a lot. Yeah, I guess in many ways it's kind of knowing yourself um is important because there will be i know and i've done this myself where i've i've got amped up for a lift or i'm like i've taken lots of caffeine and i've really got pumped up and then i go for it and like my form's just completely 
atrocious. Uh, I'm yeah. not uh, kind of. I can't get jacked up for lifts. It just throws me off completely. Whereas I know, and, and you see this with like Lane Norton and people will know of, and like Screamer Samuel, like they get amped up big time for lifts, and they 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 nail it. Um, and so I think, like you said, and I know Mike Tshirt is the same, and you need to keep calm for lifts. Um, because there's yeah optimal arousal zone for everyone and it's going to differ person to person and i guess do you find is there ever a time where people attempt these lifts where they're not like the neurological side in terms of training do they ever you see people go for lifts when they're just not even prepared for it because you talk to like you've been there before and you feel settled um like when you're attempting something you've never tried before is there anything that ever warrants you to worry or um, so powerlifting is relatively low risk, um, from, from a standpoint of getting injured or, uh, anything like that. If you miss a squat, there are safety bars there. Assuming you set yourself up well, if you miss a bench, same thing. If you miss a deadlift, you drop the barbell. Um, so the sense, uh, the risk of injury is somewhat low, very low compared to team sports and, and things where you're not moving perfectly bilaterally. So, um, from an injury standpoint, there's not too much to worry about. But from a performance standpoint, am I going to make this or am I going to miss it? Yeah, you can convince yourself out of things that otherwise training says you should be very capable of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the last few weeks of progress says, hey, you'll be fine for this training load. Uh, and then when you get under the barbell, you can totally convince yourself out of that. And that's happened to me quite a handful of times. Awesome. Um, and then just finally kind of want to, talk about if you've got your eye on anything in particular at the moment in terms of kind of is there anything that's caught your attention in terms of training tools or new research that's coming out that you're trying um different methods is there is there anything that's kind of taking your interest or are you just kind of um going with what you've got yeah so the, the bread and butter of training works very very well and i think a lot of people want to glamorize training into something more than is really necessary so like you know Static number of sets, reps, and intensity is darn effective. Mm -hmm. You know, daily undulating periodization was talked about in a lot of detail a few years back, and then you don't really hear a whole lot about it right now, and people just kind of accept that this is a good way to train. But daily undulating periodization um, is darn cool, um, and it really makes a lot of progress. One of the other things lately is we're experimenting with potentiation from a heavier load. Cool. So the idea is do something for a low number of reps with a heavy load, and then afterwards back off to a larger number of reps for a lighter load. So the idea of like a top heavy set followed by quote unquote hypertrophy work afterwards. Okay. Um, the idea there is by getting above some threshold intensity, we get to maximally recruit motor units that are quote unquote primed after that, by the time you hit your hypertrophy work, the idea being that you'll end up with a larger amount of progress than you would without having done that uh, top set work. Mm -hmm. So um, the, there, are, there is research on that in yeah. terms of sprinting um, and not so much in terms of um, strength training just yet. But the energy systems for sprinting are similar. So that leaves me optimistic that something like this can be effective for strength training as well. We might do a study on that too, uh, recruiting some volunteers and something like that. Um, but we're doing it in my own training right now with a heavy walkout um, to increase confidence too. So it'll be 
uh, a walkout with 85% or something like that, and then drop down to 75 for my work working sets. Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. I know I've, I've heard of that. And I've, I know there's, I think there's actually a technical term for it, but yeah, where it turns on the kind of more muscle fibers because you're using heavier loads. Yeah. And like you said, it primes you. So yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear how that kind of relates to things. And if you do release research, be very interesting to hear about that um, indeed. So I think, where if people wanted to find out more about you bryce where would they be best kind of finding your stuff i know i follow you on instagram um and i know obviously your website is a great place for people to go absolutely so those are the two biggest ways um on our website www.thestrengthathlete.com there's a contact page there you can send us an email Um, you can also flip through some of the information there um, and some of the freebies that that are there there's a strength training program and a temp selection sheet and then Instagram is where I post most uh, most everything else. So the two of those places are, uh, for now, where I'm kind of um, keeping my training. Brilliant. Uh, and you've got your uh, you've got your own podcast as well, so people can, if they like listening to you here, they can go and head over there as well. Yeah, we just started a podcast um, early this year, and it's a combination of bringing guests on and then talking about strength and training and conditioning um, topics. So it runs the the spectrum of things, but yeah, it's it's just been a ton of fun for us. Awesome, no, it's brilliant, and I'll I'll put all of those that information in the contact well in the description block box below, um, so people can then hold, get hold of that. And I just want to thank you big time for coming onto the podcast. Um, I know the audience will really take away a lot of value from this. So yeah, thank you a lot, Bryce. Steve, it's been a pleasure, man. Cheers, and thanks everyone for listening. Talk to you soon.